This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be speaking to Dr. Jane Tynan about her book titled Trenchcoat. Um, This is part of a series from Bloomsbury called Object Lessons, which are short, beautifully designed books about the hidden lives of ordinary things. Uh, This particular installment of the series, Trenchcoat, came out in 2022. And as the book reveals, trenchcoats are ordinary in some senses, but have all sorts of fascinating layers um, that Jane explores throughout the book. So I'm really pleased, Jane, that you're here with us to tell us about the book and inform us more about trenchcoats. Thank you, Miranda. Very happy to be here. Before we get into all the layers and meanings of trench coats, could you start us off by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining how you came to write this book? Okay. Um, I am uh, an assistant professor of design history at Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, there I work within the humanities and we look at the history and theory of design. We don't teach uh, design makers. We teach uh, our students the history and social meaning of designed objects and environments. And we're very interested in what designing reveals, I suppose, about human beings, uh, particularly how we think about the future. Um, I've been in Amsterdam now for two years, and prior to that, I worked in London for many years uh, in central St. Martins, and originally I'm from Ireland. Um, Just to give you a flavour of my own research, uh, I always seem to be looking for stories in commonplace things, um, and I've published quite a lot on the political significance of the uniform, uniform clothing. Um, which I think is really critical historically to the development of policing, military and public service roles. And this was uh, the development of uniform, I suppose, was at its most active in the 19th and 20th centuries. So I'm largely interested in histories of fashion, clothing and the body, but not thinking about aesthetics, more thinking about questions of citizenship and public trust. But I'm also interested in utopian thinking in histories of design and technology. So why did I decide to write this book? Well, this really started for me about 10 years ago when I was researching First World War military uniform uh, in London, primarily in the Imperial War Museum in London. And I noticed uh, that the trench coat was a big part of the story 
of uh, military uniform in the First World War. One of the things uh, that I, I was, one of the most important aspects of the research was thinking about why uh, there was a move to khaki, to drab colours um, within warfare in, in that conflict. But the trench coat came up as a big part of the story and I wrote about it then a little bit. But it was always in the back of my mind that somehow this deserved uh, a, a, a bigger platform, somehow, you know, looking at the trench coat and what it meant. And of course, after the First World War, uh, the trench coat continues to have a really interesting story. So when I saw the Object Lesson series, I thought, ah, this is a chance to um, really focus on this one object and to really think about what it means. And what I found also was that the story is, for me, it's really the story of the 20th century. Uh, I do a little on the 21st century, obviously, uh, but it is a 20, 20th century story for me. And once I investigated the history of the, the trench coat for this book, I found that in every decade of the 20th century, the trench coat was there in literature, in film, in theatre, and of course, in fashion. And it became clear to me that on one hand, the trench coat had a long and rich history, and on the other, it, it continues to have certain vitality in, in contemporary popular culture, and I wanted to understand why. I was really attracted to the paradox of the trench coat, the way it slipped into fiction as a metaphor for conflict and change, for mobility and action. Uh, and as one of the First World War's surviving artefacts, I think the trench coat tells many often conflicting stories uh, about who we are. Those are some fabulous reasons um, to write the book. And having read it, it really kind of makes sense to hear you explain that because so many of those threads are woven throughout the book. Um, and I think we'll probably get into a whole bunch of them. Uh, but we do have to start kind of with the obvious initial question. Where do trench coats come from? How, when and why are they developed? Well, the trench coat has complex beginnings, and I'm sure readers already know that it was named after the trenches of the First World War on the Western Front. But for many hundreds of years up to that point, people had, of course, been waterproofing garments. You know, it was, wasn't new in, in the early 20th century. Uh, for instance, indigenous peoples of the Amazon uh, Used uh, took a, a milky substance from rubber trees to to waterproof waterproof their footwear and capes. We find in Europe the oilcloth was an early form of water repellent clothing. Uh, for this, cotton or linen cloth was bathed in boiled linseed oil, and this waterproofing method was uh, became very popular for sailors and fishermen in the 1700s. But when Europeans made scientific expeditions to South America in the 18th century, that's where they encountered people using rubber to waterproof these various artefacts, not just garments, a wide range of artefacts. And uh, many of these Europeans, these uh, people on these expeditions, took samples of hevia latex back to Europe. And this is when... Uh, they started to experiment with waterproofing coats and all manner of items. But uh, this, this is when, for instance, Scottish chemist Charles Mackintosh 
1823 patented this process to create waterproof uh, material. So thinking about where the trench coat begins, this process of um, uh, waterproofing coats using using, uh, the latex was industrialized in the mid-1800s and the center of production, uh, and it really was some center of production, was, of course, England. Um, the the northwest of, of England was really significant to the the rise of of uh, um, uh, manufacture of of waterproof garments, specifically the Macintosh, um, and the Manchester cotton manufacturers um, industrialized this uh, the making of rubber garments, but it was Charles Macintosh and Company who. Um, who, who really uh, got it going. And they, of course, were reliant on the cotton and rubber trades uh, for this business. Um, so Macintosh coats were, were largely manufactured in the northwest of England at that time. The next development was vulcanization around 1860s. And this was a process for hardening rubber that made it resilient. It made it a a pliable, resilient uh, material with low water absorption. And the important thing about this, the vulcanization process, was that this was uh, a process whereby only factories could handle the various stages of production. for various reasons. Rubberized garment making took on an industrial scale precisely due to the specialist techniques for making up the garments. And you can imagine all the dangers also for workers in that period. So another important thing I think to remember here is that Macintoshes were one of the first garments to be made exclusively in factories because of this process. But to move on then to the military use of the uh, the Macintosh or the waterproof garment, the the, the rubber uh, rubberized coat, if you like, uh, this association with the military started in the mid eighteen hundreds. Uh, this was when the Macintosh, for instance, would have been worn by British military personnel. Uh, but there was also a demand from civilians uh, for the raincoat uh, with the rise of leisure activities. So thanks to these new technologies of vulcanized rubber and the rise of factory production, rainwear became fairly cheap and accessible for military, for fishermen, for civilians, uh, for really anybody who was uh, working outside. So what I show at the beginning of the book is that the Macintosh was a testing ground for the trench coat. Uh, the Macintosh isn't really the trench coat. It's, it's a sort of um, uh, a prototype, if you like. But the reason the Macintosh eventually disappeared uh, in the late 19th century was because India rubber made the coats hot and smelly, and they had, they had a really bad reputation for um, creating horrible smells. So whether it was a kind of a rubbery smell or whether it was the sweat that the, the coat trapped uh, uh, in, in, in the, uh, on the body, uh, because, of course, there was no ventilation for the body. So there was a real problem with trapped sweat uh, uh, for wearers of Macintoshes and, of course, for anybody around them. 
But what did became, become clear at this stage, at the turn of the, the century, was that there was a real demand for these waterproof garments. So various new techniques emerged to improve the design. And as I said before, the, the First World War, War gave birth to the trench coat. The very practice of naming a coat after something like the trenches of the Western Front was unusual. It was unusual to name a coat after after uh, a war, but certainly after something uh, like a, a sort of trench formation. So that was unusual and new. And this really one of the most distinctive things about the trench coat or one of the things that interested me was that this really represented a whole new approach to promoting fashion. Uh, the trench coat was a kind of branding. Um, just to, uh, the first mention I found of a trench coat uh, was in December 1914 in an ad in Punch magazine. Uh, and this was an ad for Thresher and Glenny's Thresher trench coat for six guineas. And this is five months into the First World War. So I've never found any evidence of a trench coat prior to the war. Now, I might have seen coats that looked like trench coats um, in my research, but the naming was something that only seemed to emerge with uh, the First World War. We're all familiar with trench coats from companies like Burberry and Aquascutum. Uh, they were in the business of making waterproof garments during the First World War and prior to it. Um, and they supplied British officers on the Western Front. But they and others, there were many, many companies involved in making trench coats, could see that they could boost sales by linking their products with the war. So at the time, all manner of products were given some kind of war branding, from socks to capes to household products. And many companies claimed their products were part of the war effort. And the trench coat was such a, a, an example, I think. Um, to give you a sense of what the trench coat was and what was unique and distinctive about it, um, for instance, Thomas Burberry patented his gabardine, which was a proofed textile. Um, he made waterproof twill fabric breathable by coating the individual cotton or wool yarns. And this is just one example of the many innovations in the business of waterproof coats in this period. So if you like, all these companies were clamoring to find, you know, the ideal solution for proofing textile to make it impervious to water. And many of these uh, companies would, of course, patent their treatments. Um, and a lot of the ads that I have seen in my research uh, really boast about these, these scientific, innovative uh, solutions to proofing textile and to making fabric waterproof. So we know that... Um, the trench coat was part of the uniform for the army. But another thing that I think is really important to remember is it was an optional item of dress for, for offer, officers only. So it wasn't for the rank and file. Uh, it was only for British officers. And it wasn't in the dress regulations, for instance. It was, it was completely optional. So officers could purchase the 
trench coat themselves. Uh, officers were not supplied with their own uniform and were allowed to purchase their own. And this really was tied up with the history of tailoring and notions of gentlemanly leisure, the idea that the the, the officer class would, would go to a tailor. But here they were actually buying factory-made garments um, and buying them in the local department store, we'll say. Uh, so may, wearing a factory-made garment whether you were in the trenches or whether you were a civilian just buying it to, to wear on the streets of, of, of any uh, English city um, uh, was uh, it really made um, the trench go to norm for middle and upper classes who made up the officer corps in the, in the first world war in keeping with a lot of my research on first world war uniform of course, uh, one of the reasons uh, there was a move to drab colors, to khaki, to, uh, to to those kinds of camouflage colors, if you like, this was really the result of industrial warfare and military surveillance. Um, it was important to be defensive on the battlefield rather than being garish. Uh, but the light cover of the trench coat also gave officers mobility in the field of battle. Remember, it's really light. Uh, it makes the body really mobile. And this is incredibly important strategically uh, for uh, soldiers in the field. Um, so the coat was associated, the trench coat was associated in the popular mind with the war effort. But it also seemed to reflect how the war was fought and what it meant really in material terms. Thinking about the um, the trench coat and what it meant for uh, manufacturers, um, given the sheer volume of officers recruited to the British Army and who died uh, in, in the field of battle, uh, war was very, very good for business as far as these trench coat makers were concerned. Um, it was affordable. It still had a certain uh, link with the sort of gentlemanly leisure. It seemed to hit the right note for consumers at home and for soldiers at the front. But another thing I just want to add uh, about the trench coat and what it meant during the First World War, because this, of course, was the moment of its birth, if you like, was the trench coat was really a form of propaganda. It was a fashion item, essentially, branded to link with this sort of monumental First World War. And we have to remember that military images were everywhere. Uh, the trench coat could be seen in newspapers, in, in advertisements, and of course, on the street. Um, the First World War gave it a reputation for toughness and reliability, and the other thing we should remember is it was a highly engineered military garment. It wasn't just about the, the reinforced textile. In, in so many ways, it was engineered. The, um, uh, the storm flap, the flaps, all of the flaps for letting in ventilation, uh, the double-breasted coat also uh, kept out wind. Um, there were all kinds of ways in which it would have been perceived as a very engineered and a very military garment. So at this point in the First World War, it was trusted and it was deemed to be patriotic, I think. That makes sense, um, particularly given that history. Uh, you've just very helpfully explained for us. Thank you um, for introducing us to the trench coat. 
and kind of the ways in which it's tangled up in all these ideas of war and industrialization and innovation and also obviously um, trade and empire and things like that as well. Um, while we're talking about kind of the qualities of the trench coat, the sort of militarism, the engineered, um, one thing I was really struck by in the book was how you talk about the sort of literal texture of the trench coat and how it's impervious but also really thin and moves really easily but keeps the wind out and kind of all of these things. And in the book, you talk about it often in reference to sort of skin and the idea that something about this imperviousness um, kind of lends the trench coat attractiveness or symbolism even beyond sort of the um, patriotism and other attributes that you've already mentioned. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the trench coat has a certain mystique, even to this day. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with this smooth, impervious surf surface that um, it sort of holds a lot of mysteries for us. Um, it seems to this notion of reinforcing a textile and make it imper making it impervious to to water. Um, it really goes against natural laws of porous fabrics and porous bodies. And I find this quite fascinating. Um, and I think what we would have to do really is to think back and imagine when these waterproof garments were first developed, what they meant to people. And I really think it gave people something new. Um, it was a kind of, I think I say in the book, it's a kind of soft strength uh, that made bodies impervious to water. So it's it's strong, but as you say, it's light. Um, it seems to be a protection, which is something that I think uh, in that period and even in our own period, we we are we are really obsessed with the idea that we can we can make ourselves impervious to risk, which is I suppose the mythical aspect of the trench coat in in the trenches. Um, but what I found when I moved away from the First World War into, into the next decades was that the coat actually became part of various conflicts and adventures and seemed to gain, gain a reputation for making wearers invincible, uh, whether it's soldiers on the Western Front or guerrilla fighters or gangsters or indeed reporters in the field of battle. The, the, the underlying theme seems to be that it is somehow making people invincible, whether that's uh, symbolic or real, I don't know. Um, but certainly once the trench coat was woven into stories and literature and film, it came to symbolize toughness. We see characters seemingly immune to any toxic environment that, that, that they find themselves in, whether it's in a science fiction film or whether it's um, uh, stories of reporters going into dangerous battle zones. And I can see how the fantasy of this magically impervious skin became attractive on a real and on a symbolic level. The This idea of skin that you mention um, it's interesting. It's like a second skin. It's like the, the trench coat is a second skin. It encases the human body, but it also holds together fragile bodies. Remember when I was talking about how engineered the garment is, um, it seems to encase us. It seems to 
uh, we belt up and and the, the the garment, the trench coat seems to hold together our fragile bodies. But I'm also interested in why we are so defensive that we are drawn to a garment that makes us feel invincible, that um, makes us able to uh, work against, I suppose, uh, an unforgiving environment. And I think that the trench coat really symbolizes this fragile sense of self that we have and our struggle with an environment built on violence. And this really goes back to the birth of the trench coat in war um, and how it was created for a very violent environment. Mm. So competence really in the First World War in the trenches became entangled in this dystopian landscape. They were clearly vulnerable to military machines and they used the, the trench formation to hide. We know this, but I'm really interested in the way in which the trench code materializes this defensiveness uh, that that uh, uh, conditioned how it came into being. Um, the other thing that I think is really important about the trench code and what it means to be drawn to such a uh, second skin, to be drawn to something that seemingly makes us impervious to, to the elements, to risk, is the way in which the trench coat broke down binaries of military and civilian. And we can see this in the way in which it was worn by, uh, by soldiers on the Western Front at the very, very same time as it would have been worn by people uh, on the home front, people who would just buy the the trench coat uh, as outerwear, as a, as a as a clothing item, and I think this really tells us something about the way in which um, military objects spilled out into civilian society. Uh, remember, also trench coats never lost their their military edge. The same kinds of coats were. Being, being worn by people on home and battlefront. So I see this as evidence that the trench coat really reflects this the sort of polluting influence of militarism on civil society in this period. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that there was a certain, um, a certain uh, seeping of militarism into civil society. But the trench coat tells us something about that. Uh, prior to this period prior to the First World War, military life was far removed from civilian life. It was perceived as something very remote. Um, and scholar Paul Fossil, in his book, The Great War and Modern Memory, um, really shows us how conflict um, and violence were normalized uh, in this period. And it had a lot to do with the, the links between home and battlefront. Um, so with the trench coat, I can see how military and civilian modes of being were enmeshed. And we can really see this in the way in which it is conceived as a, as a defensive garment, something defending against risk, something defending um, uh, against the elements. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Thank you for explaining that. I think um, it came up really clearly in the book because you do have a section that talks about um journalists and um gangsters really um insurgents uh and also sort of their fictional represent representations uh and this idea of kind of i had for example noticed that oh yeah they always wear trench coats and maybe they're that has something to do with militaristic values and whatever um which as you've explained it probably does but also this idea of kind of defensiveness uh really at least my eyes were very sort of opened by this interpretation um of the trench coat um as well as something else that you sort of briefly mentioned at the beginning and talk about in the book which is the idea that um trench coats are kind of always seen as modern and in some senses, this seems sort of obvious given the history of the trench coat, the development of it that you've explained of the science and the technology and the factory production. But on the other hand, what other items of clothing from the First World War do we still consider modern now, right? If we think of it through that lens, the kind of continued relevance of the trench coat decade after decade um, on the street and in fashion suddenly seems quite unique. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about how the trench coat and ideas of modernity sort of seem so consistently intertwined. Okay. Um, I do argue that the trench coat is like a symbol or a talisman of modernity in the book. Um, And there's so many reasons for this, I think. One, really, that um, it's a 20th century creation. Um, and seem to embody all these hopes of improving performance of bodies um, on land and on sea, uh, improving the performance of bodies in an industrialized environment as well. Um, It is all about protecting uh, the the body against machines often. So, as I said, in the trenches, it's military hardware. But we also see in the munitions factories, women wearing trench coats uh, as protection um, against chemicals and all kinds of um, uh, really protection against toxic environments. So it's very much a product of science and technology, um, but it's also bolstering bodies against the risks of science and technology. So for me, it really embodies uh, the modern. Um, As I said before, it's a highly engineered garment, a highly engineered covering. uh, And I would think that made people feel very modern, feel like they were entering into the modern world. Um, And of course, the trench coat turns up in the modern novel, interestingly. Uh, I found it was mentioned in many books, including those by Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, and uh, Raymond Chandler. I also found it was worn by uh, artists and writers, such as who would be considered uh, modernists, such as Pablo Picasso, Henry Miller, Simone de Beauvoir, William Burroughs, and uh, James Baldwin. So 
for these intellectuals and writers and thinkers, I think that the the trench coat seemed to seem to sum up these defensive modes of survivals, uh, these defensive modes of survival that they had um, created. Um, it seemed to have something to do with the modern malaise. Hmm. So on one hand, the trench coat embodies hope for the future, improved performance, um, which is definitely one of the conceits of modernity. Um, But it also anticipates mass fashion. Um, It's often considered a timeless or or classic garment, um, which is... uh, a strange paradox in an industry that is constantly changing like fashion. Uh, but the way the trench coat was made in factories, the mass production of the trench coats, uh, really does anticipate mass fashion um, with its synthesized textiles and factory-made clothes and also the extractive industries uh, it's dependent on. So in that way, it is also a peculiarly modern uh, product. Um, so the trench coat is seductive, not because just because it's a technocratic invention, but it also inspired new new ways of being. It represented mobility, very much a feature of modernity. Uh, it represented new territory being opened up by colonialism and global travel. Um, and there's also a sense, too, I would add, that the trench coat, it doesn't realize the dream of the human-machine hybrid, but it seems to anticipate it in its very engineering and the way it seems to make a claim that it is engineering the body. So... And while this might be an illusion, I think the trench coat's popularity and enduring popularity suggests that this is an illusion we might want to hang on to. Hmm. Intriguing. I like this idea of the illusion, right? That goes back to kind of who wears it and what does it mean when different people wear it. Um, And I'd love to kind of bring in one element that's very much present in the book, but we haven't really yet explicitly talked about, which is, of course, gender. Um, and who is wearing the trench coat and what does it mean when different people wear the trench coat? And I love that you talk about in the book, uh, use the phrase gender anxieties of the trench coat. What were they? Yes, uh, there seem to be a lot of gender anxieties surrounding the trench coat. Uh, But I started really writing about this in the book in relation to service women in the First World War. Um, Women started to wear trench coats during the war in in their roles as uh, service personnel, um, largely as munition workers and ambulance drivers. I think for the ambulance drivers, probably the the best known would be VADS, which were the voluntary aid detachment. Um, But this was when uh, women had to take on these service roles because there was such demand and there was such a, the war itself was such a crisis. But women also saw it as an opportunity to participate in a national story. um, And for many, it might have been a a very, very exciting opportunity. And this was a moment really 
that suffragettes, uh, this was a very important moment for first wave feminism, and suffragettes saw it as an opportunity to demonstrate women's capacity for full citizenship. So this wasn't exactly what suffragettes wanted in terms of uh, a platform, but it came along and they made use of it. Um, Thinking about how people um, responded to women in uniform, uh, really was met with resistance at the beginning. Uh, We know that women were kept back in many ways. Uh, They participated in service roles, but they were um, managed down, if you like. They received less pay. They held civilian status. And there was lots of discrimination against women in these service roles. And it even extended to the redesign of more feminine insignia uh, for those military women. But as I've said, the scale of the conflict made it impossible to stem the flow of women into the army, uh, such was the demand for service personnel. And it was no longer practical to confine women to their usual roles as nurses, cooks, clerks. So during the First World War, women were called upon to do the muscular work of driving and digging. Um, The authorities were ambivalent about recruiting women, but of course they had to. Um, And the result was that women in military gear became a more common sight. And this is one of the ways in which the trench coat slipped into the national consciousness. Uh, women in trench coats appeared in propaganda photographs, uh, usually of ambulance drivers and munitions workers, as I've said. But they were also, again, in advertisements for trench coats. They were in department stores because that's where a lot of the the, the nurses and ambulance drivers would have um, uh, acquired their uh, their, their uh, uniforms. Uh And all in all, it was seen as a form of masculinity, that these women were pitching for men's jobs, they were unfeminine, uh, and so on. But as the war progressed, to some extent, trench coats on women and military gear generally was normalized. So when I say there was gender anxieties uh, in relation to the trench coat, Um, militarizing women uh, in this way, in this very visible way on their body, uh, really disrupted the taken-for-granted stability of Edwardian gender relations. Um, And as I suggest in the book, to some extent contributed to the idea of the new woman uh, in that period. Um, as these militarized women became more and more accepted because there was uh, a lot of resistance at the beginning. The authorities weren't sure whether whether it was a good idea to let these women uh, do this military work. But uh, eventually they were actually regarded, and certainly newspaper reports suggest that they were regarded as patriots. Um, What I really argue is that the trench coat was co-opted by women in, in the war for liberation. Certainly suffragettes saw it as an opportunity. And as such, it became part of the toolkit for emancipation and survival, of course. Um, 
And I argue really that the trench coat became entangled in gender politics in during the First World War and afterwards. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. I thought it was really interesting kind of how different groups sort of all viewed the same thing in such different ways. Um, so thank you for kind of giving us that introduction to sort of that debate. Um, I'm interested in sort of picking up on something that you've briefly mentioned, which is about um, trench coats being a symbol of sort of um, insurgents or guerrilla fighters or anything sort of in that category. And it's very clear that that is true. You talk in the book, for example, about um, the IRA um, wearing trench coats, uh, both in actual fact and in kind of representations of them. But given that we've also talked about trench coats kind of starting from this really patriotic sort of military aspect, um, how and why do you think trench coats almost switched from kind of being the government symbol to being the insurgent one? Yeah, this is an interesting um, swerve, isn't it? Um, We do find um, if we go back... uh, into just before the first world war we find that there is there are images emerging of the the shadowy figure of of the anarchist for instance in english literature in particular uh we see in this literature this this shadowy figure symbolizes fears of disorder uh in joseph conrad's the secret agent in 1907 for instance or Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday in 1908. Um, And I think this is really the root of the trench-coated insurgent. Um, uh, We know that anarchists uh, act voluntarily, not necessarily part of an official army. So they seem to embody a really sort of subterranean threat the threat of surprise. They're often painted as a shadowy presence wandering the city with dynamite in their pockets. But when it was adopted for British officers on the Western Front, which I said, this made them the trench-coated man. It really transformed the trench-coated man into a symbol of patriotism and national unity. But what we find was that this, this didn't last long. Uh, by the end of the war, they were worn, worn by insurgents in various regions. Uh, and one of the stories that I highlight in the book uh, is the use of the trench coat by IRA columns in the War of Independence in Ireland from 1919 to 1921. And the reason they used the trench coat um, is partly, as I've said, because you could buy them in shops, they were easily available. But they were sort of ideal for guerrilla operations, if you think about it. Uh, The IRA, the old IRA, as we call them, could blend with the local population since it was a civilian clothing item. Um, They can stay ahead of a powerful enemy, really, by hiding in plain sight. Um, And Irish rebels at this time, what they were doing with the trench coat was really interesting because they were sort of repurposing uh, the uniform of the imperial powers uh, in a fight against against the crown. So this is an interesting paradox of 
the the story of the trench coat after the war. But it wasn't just in Ireland. I mean, during the Spanish Civil War, Kiko Sabate uh, was an anarchist who hid a Thompson submachine gun under his trench coat in various guerrilla actions he was involved with. He was uh, a very dangerous uh, man and uh, a very effective insurgent. Um, So it wasn't just Ireland, it wasn't just Spain. The trench coat gave guerrillas in many regions a certain mobility. It's light, it's easy to acquire, it has large pockets for maps and ammunition. It also gives, importantly, a cover for weapons and keeps the weapons dry. Um, So on a practical level, the trench coat was a very useful piece of kit. Uh, And of course, it allowed insurgents to camouflage if they were in the countryside and if they were in the city, they could camouflage by just um, uh, mixing in with the local population. It would have been very hard to identify subversives in the crowd, given the number of men and women uh, who wore trench coats uh, in in various parts of Europe at that time. Hmm. And this sort of leads nicely into something else that we've briefly mentioned, um, but I'd love to get more into uh, because of the role it plays in the book, which is uh, how trench coats show up in film. Uh, and I'm sure we can think of a whole bunch of things, particularly the example you just mentioned of kind of blending in in a crowd in an urban area. And some of the people wearing the trench coats are maybe the bad guys or whatever. And some of them are just normal people. And you can't tell because everyone's wearing a trench coat. Um, that's I think for a lot of people, quite familiar image from film. Um, and so I was not surprised and very pleased that you talked about it in the book. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, your thoughts on this now. Yes, uh, trench coats in film in the 1930s and 1940s is a very, very interesting story. Um, largely, it's worn on... It's worn by reporters and, of course, detectives in film and in crime fiction, too. Uh, Raymond Chandler's creation, Philip Marlowe, is probably the best example. Um, It gives Marlowe a kind of air of stoicism, style, makes him look like he's in control. He's certainly in control of his body because he's he's belted up and belted in. but what's interesting about these characters is they're not um, uh, conformist characters in any way. They're they're presented as almost traumatized anti-heroes. Uh, we see this, for instance, in 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 Chandler's um, 1939 novel, The Big Sleep. Um, and in this novel, Marlowe uh, wanders through through the city, trying to make sense of his surroundings. Uh, he goes about his his uh, quest to separate good from evil. So on one hand, he is a uh, a figure of authority, but to some extent he is uh, dissolute. Um, he's traumatized. He's a kind of anti-hero. Um, and when we look at the film noir of the 1940s or detective fiction of that period, we see the trench coat almost illustrating the degeneracy of the city. This is a time when organized crime in the US certainly was at its height following prohibition. And 
it was very hard to distinguish between lawmakers, law enforcers, lawbreakers somehow. And the trench coat helps us to understand almost visually that um, various characters such as detectives, such as police, had to go undercover. So this stealthy presence in the city was characterized by the man in the trench coat image. Um, It seemed to be the perfect cover for detectives investigating dark goings-on in unsettled territory. But it wasn't just the detective who wore the um, trench coat. Gangsters also wore them, um, and certainly in film were depicted as wearing them. Um, And remember, the gangster was, there was really a, a conflict or a struggle between the image of the gangster and the image of the detective. And I suppose from what I've read, uh, I can see that the 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 trench-coated detective uh, almost emerged from the gangster image to create a kind of um, uh, attractive, dissolute, aggressive character um, uh, that was to some extent, conformist. Uh, Remember that film goers would have been fascinated by the coercive power that gangsters had on film, this aggressive masculine image that they had. And the trench coat seemed to sum up their subversive behaviour, how they concealed weapons and how they concealed motives. Uh, We know that the coat was a good hiding place for a gun, and this can be seen in, in various movies, Uh, in the 1940s, such as Laura, The Third Man, The Maltese Falcon. Um, And ultimately, we see the the trench-coated detective is is almost a a repurposed gangster to some extent. He walks among the gangsters, he walks among the lawbreakers, and he is um, just as flawed in many ways but he is the symbol of good winning out over evil. But when we move on from the 1930s, we find that the trench-coated anti-hero can be found um, in the 1950s, in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. And um, there were many films uh, I discuss in the book which show the the trench coat as a stand-in for ambivalence, for, um, we'll say, characters who are not sure of their position. And one good example is probably Blade Runner uh, in the 1980s. Uh, Deckard, a disillusioned cop in a trench coat, again, trying to separate good from evil. Uh, He seems to be uh, sort of reconstituted from the noir myth. but in this story, of course, he's separating good from evil, but he's also separating the real from the artificial in a corrupt, uh, post-human, cybernetic society, if you like. Thank you. In all of, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, please tell us more. This is fascinating. Um, one of, yeah, one of the things that I, I found with, with all of these movies was that... Uh, the trench coat seemed to give gangsters, detectives, truth tellers a certain autonomy, which is what led me to think of it as a way of telling stories about embattled characters, about stories of survival. Um, 
we see it in the the matrix for instance uh the urban camouflage of trench coats is really useful for the characters neo and trinity um and we see there the trench coat actually resists bullets uh while also concealing uh weapons um and this is where i started to think that it's more than a surface effect in film uh this the trench coat speaks to the fragility of bodies and our sense of crisis uh really about the external world thank you i can almost see in my head as you were explaining that kind of the visual progression uh, that you were describing. And I think there's so many iconic moments that this analysis sort of helps us um, peer more closely into. Um, And that's very much the theme of sort of my penultimate question, which is uh, the whole idea object lessons of the series, as I understand it, is to uh, look more closely, investigate items that we might just kind of take for granted in a way. Uh, And you've very helpfully so far uh, taken us into your thinking and shown us all the other ways and lenses and layers of the trench coat. In this process of investigating, was there anything in particular that jumped out and surprised you? There were so many. Uh, There were many, many things that surprised me. Uh, But I was intrigued by one particular episode um, and very surprised by it. And that was the presence of the trench coat at the assassination of Leon Trotsky. Um, I think we're very familiar with the story that uh, Trotsky was killed in Mexico in 1940 uh, with an ice pick. Uh, but uh, my research suggested that the assassin, a Spanish uh, communist, uh, visited his office with a pickaxe uh, concealed under a trench coat. Um, And I was fascinated by the idea that this took place exactly when trench coats were becoming a cipher for violence and anonymity in literature and film, and also in literature and film, Uh, the trench coat seemed to be a cue for undignified endings for big characters. So it seemed that this really um, uh, echoed in this story for me. Uh, We know that uh, Trotsky later died from uh, the wounds he got from the pickaxe. But to me, it was significant that the trench coat was the thing that concealed this threat of violence. Hmm. That is a good one. Um, I think for anyone who um, studied uh, as a child in the UK or um, has children currently studying in the UK, uh, Trotsky and the ice pick is something taught in history class. Uh, They clearly should add trench coats to that lesson as well. Indeed, yes. What a good surprise. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, That leaves really only my last question, uh, which is that this book is now done. It is out. It is available. Is there anything um, you might be working on now or next you'd like to let the audience know a little bit about? Yes, I at the moment I am just finishing some work on the use of the blanket in prison protests, uh, specifically looking at um, prison protests in Northern Ireland in the early 1980s. Uh, But for my next project, I think I'm very interested in this whole idea of design as a kind of defensive practice. the Trenchcoat book has really got me thinking about how we think about design 
and maybe how we could think about design and the history of design differently. We've become accustomed to thinking of design as kind of hopeful and progressive, utopian, uh, making a better life. But what if much of the design we encounter is really about avoiding trouble, working against uh, hidden enemies, working against our environment? So I think my next project will stay with this theme of design working against the elements. Um, and I'm thinking of design as a practice that battles against the natural environment and, of course, doesn't always win. Hmm, that sounds intriguing. Best of luck with that project. We'll be curious to see where that goes. Um, and while you're working on it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing. Unsurprisingly, by now you should probably remember that it, the book is titled Trenchcoat. Um, it is out from Bloomsbury in 2022. Jane, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>